Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, my book today uses uh, this device of twins changing roles to extraordinary effect. The book is The Secret Heiress and the author is Luke Devonish. So, Luke, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you for having me in today. Not a worry. Now, this is a change of setting from your previous novels. I mean, Jan's interviewed you before and your novels were set in Rome. Oh, ancient Rome. Ancient Rome. Where are we now and what's the reason for the change? Well, we're a little closer to home yeah. <laughs> than we were previously for the first two books. Uh, this, so The Secret Heiress is set in Victoria, Yep. parts of it in Melbourne, primarily though in the town of Castlemaine, which is where I live, but set in the late 1880s uh, into the early uh, early 20th century, so, the period yeah, I'm working with. And it actually expands a couple of generations, but we'll get into that shortly, but the detail in the book to make this come alive in that period, you've done some delightful things. I mean, all these little references that I noticed throughout the book, and I'll just name a couple. I mean, mouldy rye in bread, alum is another one in bread. What does mouldy rye do? It uh, can send you crazy. So there was a problem in the 19th century with uh, with because people storage wasn't great. And uh, you, if you left rye in your pantry for a little bit too long, it was rather prone to getting an infection. Now, some people quite liked that because one of the things you could get if you ate this mouldy bread made out of mouldy rye was it had a hallucinatory effect. So <laughs> some people were rather connoisseurs of that. <laughs> and alum made the bread whiter. So oh, people love white al- bread. Alum was a way of um, expanding the amount of flour you might actually have. It was a way of creating cheaper loaves for less, ah. really. It was awful stuff. But what interests me is the access to this detail, the importance of mm. this detail in telling a story. Well, this is this is why I love writing historical fiction, because for me it's like just being a bit of a bower bird, really. I'm a big reader anyway, so I read a lot of non-fiction, um, probably through choice more than fiction, to be perfectly honest, because I just love it. And when I do that, and I read a lot of 19th century stuff about life in Australia in the late 19th century, and I just sort of go through just ticking off things that I quite like the sound of, and, and eventually they become a book. That's sort of the way I work. But it, it affirms the setting, it affirms the time. This is what I think. And things like that are extraordinary. You know, we don't, no one knows what alum is anymore, and the idea that you know, rye bread could have sent you la-la is, to most people, pretty astonishing. Yeah, an, an early day, you know, a hallucinogen uh, beats drugs. Now, more importantly, it's the house where a lot of this mm. is set. And the house in this novel is almost like a character. And if I may, uh, Ida told herself she would remember it always, that she'd etched it onto her brain somehow, her first ever look at Summersby. Uh, she snatched tempting glimpses of it to begin with, the great mansion half seen through the canopy of elms and carajongs, as they made their way in the carriage, past the wrought iron gate and the osage orange hedge, and up the long sweeping drive that led to the house. The carriage trundled and squeaked for hours, it felt like, but probably not that long, Ida's canvas bag in her hand all the way, containing a shiny new... Uniform. As Ida sat there, 
staring, she told herself she would remember forever Summersby's grand Italianate style, for she already knew that this was the name for it, built from Harcourt granite in two long wings that met at an angle. She would recall its full three stories until the day she expired, she declared to herself, and recall the magnificent tower placed, it was true, somewhat eccentrically, so that it rose from the middle of the eastern wing, an affront to some in town for its lack of symmetry symmetry, but never to her, not now that she'd seen it up close. <laughs> this house is a character. Well, I hope it, I hope, I want it to be. It's certainly got a very strong presence uh, throughout the book. Um, it was inspired by several houses that I'd been to, um, particularly Werribee Mansion, which probably many listeners would have been to too, but also Rupert's Wood in Sunbury, um, which probably not as many would have been to. I think it operates as a school now. But I love when you go to visit those houses that there is such a sense of theatre about them that they have been built in a way to delay the reveal. You know, the, the gate is always a very, very, very long way from the house. There's always a very winding driveway to take you there that usually get, does exactly that, gives you little glimpses of the uh, the final excitement that you that you get well, when you arrive. It tells a story in it, many ways. That's it, in, yeah. in, in that. But, I mean, I mean, we can look at one of the houses that was sold in Melbourne recently on Richmond Hill, and it's got a ghost, and it's part of that period, mm. uh, etc. But it's also part of our history that we don't often... Uh, tell because it was built. Um, well, the reasons for it, these houses being built, they came out of. Oh, well, most of them were, uh, I suppose, the showpieces of the squatocracy, as we might call them. So these are people that made themselves extremely wealthy through often rather dubious means. Uh, and the father in this book, the late father in The Secret Heiress, has acquired his fortune through exactly this. He is ostensibly a prospector, but in truth, he's probably a, a rather dodgy man that has just sort of done little deals here and there. Well, you've actually got a contrast in the story of where he started, which a little... Sort of a little tin and, and bark shack is where he begins and where the girls are actually conceived uh, in the in the backstory, if you like. But I mean, one of the way these people, one of the reasons why they were able to build such houses was there was no taxation. So, and there were often sort of little backhanded deals to acquire land that was going on in the middle of the 19th century. So lots of people just sort of suddenly became rich virtually overnight. And announced their presence. Did they ever. With these grand mansions. These kick-ass houses. And it was all about, <laughs> look at me. Yeah. And uh, it was about pretending to be the aristocracy. Yes. When, in fact, none of them were. Well, this is again, this comes into the novel in terms of uh, the new generation uh, coming out from England with its class structure and such like, but now we're as good as everybody else. Exactly. But you talked about the conception of the girls, and so this gets us into the characters. Matilda and Margaret, mm. now what's going on here? Well, I don't want to give too much away, but I've always been pretty obsessed with the idea of, of identical twins. And this is not the first time I've uh, had some fun with them in a story, shall we say, but this is probably the, the most fun I've ever had with them in a story. Um, the big, uh, What I've always loved about identical twin stories is the in, invariably they play games of swapping identities. I mean, this goes back to films like The Parent Trap, for example, those sorts of things. The Paddy Duke show. Yeah, Paddy, the Paddy, Paddy Duke, Duke passed away recently. The late Paddy Duke, yeah. exactly. Now, this that's uh, traditionally is something that you encounter 
encounter in film and TV. Mm. The challenge I set myself was to do a have some fun with identical twins changing identities in a book form where you can't actually see them. And that may be one of the reasons why it took me three drafts to get this book right, because it really was a challenge to pull that one off. Well, uh, yeah, I want to get into some of those challenges a little later on, but you therefore have Matilda and Margaret changing places, and this becomes a plot device, mm-hmm. but you change the conventional uh, changing of roles or I hope I have, yes, without saying too much. Yeah, I, that exactly. is what I've tried to do, is put a new spin on the changing of places. So we've got to sort of um, read and investigate uh, to try and work out um, who and where. But interestingly enough, the book opens with a funeral. It does. Well, these are a pair, these are a pair of twins who've spent much of their lives changing places until... A final changing place, shall we say, has uh, fateful consequences. So uh, when the book begins, um, one of them is being put six feet under. Um, But uh, I suppose the fun for the reader is to guess which one is actually underground. Which one? But also then you're playing with twins in the sense that having taken on each other's identities because they've changed roles, this actually occurs... In the novel, this this notion of well, who am I actually? Which, who am I? So one of the, I suppose the the spin I tried to put on this one is that one of the twins uh, is suffering from permanent memory loss. Uh, she has no short term memory; <laughs> it's gone completely due to an accident at birth. And uh, shall we say that is something that can be potentially faked or could potentially be real, depending on who she just may actually be. But it can be used then in the telling of the story to cloud things. Well, or? that was my plan. <laughs> <laughs> nothing is all. Nothing is quite apparent, shall mm. we say? But also then, so we've got this notion or this uh, situation with the twins and who is who, but we've also got a rather strange array of other characters. We have an insolent assistant called Barker, mm-hmm. a rather handsome but bereft Samuel Hackett, and the clatter of a dog no one ever seems to see, mm-hmm. who is, which is disturbing the night. And if you will indulge me yet again, Ida squeezed herself tighter under the bed, fists at her ears to block out the sound. Go away! Even with the late summer thunderstorm howling in the night outside, the noise of the ghost dog in her head was relentless, clawing at her door like a demon hell-bent on getting to her, hell-bent on tearing her to shreds. (laughs) Barker, Hackett and the ghost dog. What have you done? This is my love of, shall we say, of Victorian Gothic tropes. Uh, and I, I make no apology for that. In fact, I celebrate these things. So these are these are sort of tropes that were put in place by writers like Charlotte Bronte, for example, uh, with books like Jane Eyre. Very memorable images used in the 19th century. And I was looking at those and wanted to do very much my own sort of take on them. So doing a shift of location, but, but while still being very truthful to the, some of those things that these these images, these ideas, these story elements bring to a story. So, yes, I've played with the mad woman in the attic, the satanic servant, the ghostly presence, uh, the gentleman cad, the lady in peril. I mean, these are all great fun to play with. They really are. Um, and 
there's a rich tradition of these story elements in the Gothic novel. Mm. But how does that then suit the Australian setting? Another part of my challenge. So one thing I was really... One thing I felt very certain about was that the traditional English location of the of the dark and stormy moor, shall we say, was not appropriate here because we don't really have an equivalent of that. So from the get-go, I decided it was not going to be storm clouds. It was not going to be, you know, dark. In fact, the it's, it's drenched in sunshine. It's set in, in two summers um, across two different years, 1887 and 1903. And what I had in my mind was the image of sort of um, Streeton and McCubbin paintings, that sort of look. So the darkness comes from trees, but it's not from storms. So it's ancient eucalypts, it's just bronzed hills, it's sort of um, endless paddocks, that sort of feel to it. So that's what I brought in. But I, I wanted to sort of see how the elements might change in my hands when put in that landscape, I guess. What what what. What a new, what new flavour might come out from some of those traditional mm. storytelling? Because the tradition has been transplanted to Australia. I mean, with the the housing, with the class structure, and we see it because we've got servants and masters, mm. and all of that was the English tradition that was brought out here. Yes, and yet what I really love about well, what I discovered reading so much about the period was well, yes, we brought that class structure out, but we completely put our own version of it, if you like. So. Um, perhaps listeners are familiar with Downton Abbey, for example, right? Um, which makes a very clear point about the way class structures work in, worked in Britain. Now, we had a different take on that. For one thing, servants did not consider themselves to be in any way inferior to their masters over here. Um, and that's, that's our egalitarianism. They consider themselves employees, but not inferiors. Um, and in fact, for people that were hoping to maintain a, a big household here, like Summersby is in the book, it was next to impossible to actually get the required amount of servants that you needed to run such a place, mainly because most people had a real problem with seeing themselves as servants. So you were lucky if you had two or three people to run an enormous household like, say, Werribee Mansion, for example. And what you did if you had such a household was you gave everyone, the few servants you did have, a classy title. You called them housekeeper or you called them butler. But the truth was they did damn well everything, or if they felt like it. This was the other thing too. Mm. And it was very hard to keep servants. People were prone to quitting at the drop of a hat. Ill treatment always went badly. Um, people would just walk off. There was a lot of employment in Australia, so people had the choice to yeah. work, work wherever they wanted to work. Well, Very the, different than Britain. This leads into then that relationship between Barker and, and Hackett, yeah. Samuel Hackett. Samuel Hackett was engaged to Matilda, mm -hmm. but again, he's not of the same class. No, he's a, he's a Brit. Uh, he's of what we call the, the, gentry, the gentry class in Britain. So he doesn't have a title, uh, but he comes from a, a well-to-do family. But he's the third son. So he hasn't got any Nothing. substance behind All him. All he's got is an accent and good looks. And, and Barker, in many ways, treats him with almost contempt. Complete contempt. In fact, they come to blows several times in the book. Um, but they're, they're sort of bound, shall we say, by their past. But, uh, but you know, I, I, and I think that's very reflective of what it was like mm. to employ someone at that time. You just had to put up with a lot. But then you've got the next generation because we've sort of got to, we've talked about that earlier 1800s, uh, late 1800s, but then the early 1900s, mm. you have a character called Biddy mm -hmm. coming into this. Biddy McBride was cheery, pretty, lately 16, and employed as the Reverend's first 
best kitchen maid and the story she spun on the way to the Bridge Road shops with her best friend Queenie, 15, the Reverend's second kitchen maid, was this. Biddy was engaged in a clandestine romance with Tom, the handsome grocer's boy at Top's General Store. Good-looking Tom could appreciate a beauty when he clocked one. Biddy's story went, no matter how soot-stained the rags that lessened her. And he and Biddy were in love as a consequence, but no one must ever know of it. I love Biddy and... Good. Well... Um, Biddy's character traits. What's, what's she? Well, she's to? a she's a compulsive fantasist. I think might be the good word to describe. Storyteller. Her. She's a storyteller. She's a storyteller. Originally, I described her as a fibber, and uh, and my publisher said maybe that's too strong a word. Why don't you consider another word? People might not like her if they conceive of her as a liar. And so and and she's not a liar, but she does live in her head a lot, and she's got a great capacity for just spinning up a story to get herself out of problems. Yeah, fabricating stories. She fabricates a lot of stories, but she fabricates her way in. To a position at she Summersby. does. Yeah, she does. So the two parallel strands that are going on in the book are both set in the same house, just with separated by 17 years. And um, Biddy, through coincidence, ends up in the same house that uh, the character Ida has also got a job in 17 years earlier. Biddy and Ida are connected. I won't say how, but there is something that binds them. Um, ultimately that is revealed in the story. But yeah, Biddy talks herself in and she's got a very, you know, she's got a she's got a clever mouth, is Biddy. And she becomes the companion of Sybil, mm. who is basically the heiress. She's the heiress. Um, uh, one of them, shall we say. There's a few potential well, heiresses in the story. That but, leads uh, to the, the title, The Secret Heiress, mm-hmm. and which is why we can't say too much indeed about the story but yes yeah, so Sybil uh, is leading this weird life where um, she's very she's very wealthy but she has very little control over her own existence uh, she's never actually gone much beyond the town of Castlemaine uh, where the house is um, for reasons that she doesn't understand and in fact no one understands except one person in the story as to why she's being confined um, we'll just say perhaps that there is a scandal that may have been had something to do with the fact that she's uh, been kept away from the world but that's another gothic trope I have to say mm. that I rather like <laughs> mm. the confined young lady yes yeah and Sybil and uh uh, and and Biddy become companions, etc. Um, Biddy's got a more worldly wise perspective. Mm. Sybil, that isolated perspective, and the uh, reader's going to have to find out um, what's going on there, because you've used coincidence a lot here. I've got no shame to say about that. <laughs> well, coincidence. It, fits, it fits the style and the, and the it, it Victorian is a, It's trope. a great 19th century device. I yeah. mean, uh, Dickens would have been lost if he chose not to go with coincidences. Uh, and in fact, I celebrate them here. There are some gloriously fantastic coincidences in the book. And I say, don't pretend you're not using them. Make a strength out of this particular yeah. device. Wave them in the air and point at them. And that's what I hope I've done here in The Secret Well, areas. this leads this, uh, to a sort of um, what you've had to do in terms of managing these two periods, managing the uh, twindom, shall we say, of these uh, cha- these characters that change identity in some way, uh, which sort of leads then into the style, because you've had to employ a certain device here um, in terms of helping 
the plot or the thinking along. As Mr. Skews escorted Ida down the steep flight of steps from Dr. Fole's front door to the hilly end of Moyston Street, she made a mental note of the three interesting things that had struck her in the course of their conversation. One, Mr. Skews had been adamant that the vial contained hungry water, as he called it, and yet he didn't open the thing to make sure. How could he be certain without checking? Two, when she told him that Matilda said he had been present at Margaret's death, he had been freely forthcoming with information, yet he had not asked how or why Matilda should think such a thing. He accepted it at once. Three, Mr. Skews was utterly certain that Margaret Gregory had been ill in her mind. (laughs) You've used this device, one, two, three, and Mm. throughout the story... The need for that? Well, Ida is, without without herself actually realising it, a born detective. Um, in fact, she's been hired um, for that very reason. Um, the whole thing that kicks the story off is Ida being hired as uh, a housemaid. Um, and um, she's not hired for her smarts. In fact, she's been brought up on, on the farm with everyone telling her she's, she's as not dumb as, as a hammer, really. Mm. Yeah, mm. she isn't. Mm. Um, but no one has really quite recognised her potential. But what it is acknowledged about Ida, and is the reason she gets the job, is that she's blessed, stroke cursed, with a compulsive inquisitiveness. She asks a lot of questions, mm. and she's compelled to seek answers. And she misses things because she's, well, she's a naive girl, but she also gets a lot of things that others are failing to see. Well, she's eavesdropping, there are little notes left, and you know, for all sorts of various reasons. She's putting the picture of the puzzle together just as the reader is. Exactly. So it's actually, it's through Ida's eyes that we see much of the story. Mm. And in fact, that was the device I settled on um, as a way of, I suppose, allow Ida is fooled about a number of things and it's through Ida that we are fooled. Mm. Um, then Ida comes to realise just what is going on around her and so so do we at the same time. And so the reader has to sort of put the pieces of the puzzle together. But this leads to another challenge for the author to manage (laughs) the time zones, the characters, the changing of identities. How did you manage that? Well, uh, it it did drive me to drink. Thanks for asking, David. (laughs) (laughs) That can't be necessarily a bad thing. Not for any writer. Um, It took me three drafts to get this one absolutely right. So I don't mind confessing, the first draft was unnecessarily complicated. In fact, that were the very words of my agent. Unnecessarily complicated. Um, I think I just tried too much, tried to make it too convoluted, too twisty and turny uh, in the initial draft. The second draft was better on that front, and it was the second draft I realised putting it through the point of view of a naive young character was the way to go. So I initially hadn't latched on that idea, Um, but still too complicated. But the third draft, I think I really nailed it, to be honest. So I, I... It's still got some delicious twists and turns in this book, of which I'm very proud um, of being able to pull them off. And and I'm confidently told by many that, yes, it's a good ride and it does indeed um, trick the reader in various points. Well, the reader has to be alert. The reader sort of has to play a close attention because the names are similar. Matilda, Margaret, um, you've got handwriting styles. Is this... Whose handwriting are we seeing now? Who is this character? Um, And such like. Um, So balancing it all in one's mind. Um, So it it becomes quite a challenge. Now, I promise the listener that you can 
absolutely find your way through this book by concentrating. But if you don't feel like concentrating, coast along. Have some fun. That's frankly how I read most mysteries. Well, I just go for the ride. It is a mystery, that that setting, all of the delight of that. The challenge is there as well, um, but it becomes a, a very entertaining and engrossing read. The book is The Secret Heiress by Luke Devanish, Devanish and it's a Simon & Schuster publication. 